We're going to talk about family this morning. And uh, this is actually in conjunction with a, a series of messages, um, our summer sermon series, if you will, uh, called Torn Veil. And we introed this a few weeks ago. Um, you can actually catch up or listen to any to the, the series that you may have missed on our podcast. Go to our website. But the idea behind Torn Veil is when Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, there was a veil that separated uh, people, normal people, humanity, fallen humanity, from holy God, creature from creator. And up until that point, the way people, at least the Jewish people, had always related with God, who was holy, who was separate, who was perfect, who was everything that they wanted, and yet because they were not, there was this, this gap, this separation between fallen, broken, sinful people and holy, loving, perfect God. And in fact, the temple that had been constructed, the whole temple was designed in such a way to, uh, so as to accentuate uh, the holiness and the beauty and the perfection of God. And the further into the temple that you went, uh, the more sort of uh, compartments and dividing lines and ultimately even a veil separated uh, the, the priesthood and the people from that holy place where God himself would dwell. The holy of holies is what they called it. When Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross nearly 2,000 years ago, it is said that the, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And on one hand, it's just this really surreal, slightly bizarre thing that, that took place, but it's also this profoundly symbolic and, and powerful picture of what was actually happening in that moment. That dividing partition, that thing that separated sinful people from holy God had been ripped in two. And so Jesus bridged the gap, thus making a way permanently, once and for all, for us to cross over, to step through the veil and begin to experience relationship, community, uh, friendship with God. The implications are vast and profound. So it was a moment, an event in history, but, but it was something that changed all of history. And so we posed the question, in light of the torn veil, what, what does that mean? What does that look like in just like natural, everyday, normal life categories? Uh, work, stress, money, family. What are the implications Today, we're going to talk about family. I've done most of my research uh, for this morning's talk uh, during the last four days. I went on a four-day, three-night camping trip with my family. And uh, let me tell you, normally I'll spend um, a substantial amount of time, uh, usually over a period of weeks, praying, reading, writing, in preparation for, for what God would, would say to us. Uh, through his word as we gather on Sundays. Um, but this week was exceptional because I found 
Like I said, most of my preparation taking place as I chased my dirty little kids around the campsite and uh, constantly asking God, what is it about family uh, that you want us to know? What is it about family that you're so into, so much so that God would refer to himself as father? God is a, um, a family man, if I can put it that way. He is father. Um, family. Now, obviously, we all have families. Either we're sort of in a family, we are the product of a family, um, maybe a little too young to have started creating our own family, um, or maybe you are, in fact, at that stage in life where you are creating your own family. Uh, maybe you're engaged, maybe you're married, maybe you've even um, spawned one or two little ones. Um, is, that, is that weird? Um, yeah, so we have three. We have Judah, Isaac, and Evie, three, six, and seven. Judah's about to turn four. It's funny. So Evie's six, and uh, we just had them wait in a couple weeks ago. We had to take one of the kids to the doctors. Isaac just had his cast off. Judah, our little three-year-old, weighs almost the exact same as Evie, our, our six-year-old. Kid is 100% South African stock. My wife is from South Africa. If you've ever met a South African man, they've just eaten, I think over a period of like a thousand years, a lot of meat. He's just like this little, little tank. Yeah, it's, it's funny and scary. <laughs> he, he, he picks on his older, his seven-year-old brother. It's, uh, it's actually not funny. So let's talk about family. The cross and family. In light of the torn veil, what, what, how can we apply Jesus' work on the cross to the way we, we do family, we build family, the health of our family? Can I say that there is nothing more precious in life than the health and wholeness of our families? Would anyone dispute that? Certainly our, our immediate biological families, but even just our extended families, our church families, our, our neighborhood families, family, relationship. You can have everything in the world. Not that I've had everything in the world, but if you don't have family, if your family is suffering, if it's breaking apart, I don't know that you have anything at all. Family is so profoundly important. If it's not going well, well, it can, it can kind of crush you. If it's falling apart, if one of your little ones is perhaps getting into trouble, keeping you up late at night, sick in the hospital, or if your parents are perhaps not getting along well, if perhaps they're going through divorce or on the verge of it, it can wreck your life. It can absolutely wreck your life on every scale imaginable. So this is a big deal. What does God have to say about our families? And in light of the cross, how can we build families in a way that they're whole, they're healthy, and they're life-giving? So not only do we individually benefit, but our, our city 
our community, our world, the, pe- the people without, people literally without anyone to call family, how can they benefit from ours? Okay, enough introduction. Let's, let's begin here. In Genesis 12, we read about a particular family. Uh, the patriarch, as it were, of the family is a man named Abraham. Now, this is unprecedented. You only find this really ever taking place only here in Genesis 12 and on in the scriptures. But God, for whatever reason, decides he's going he's gonna to establish an agreement, a covenant with this man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, through your family, I'm going to restore the world. He says, through your family, I'm going to bless all families for all time in the world. Family. Family is God's um, method of choice when it comes to redeeming creation. It's his go-to tool. It's the thing that he's chosen to, to pour out his spirit through, to bring restoration through family. And it began with this guy named Abraham. Let me, let me read this to you. Genesis chapter 12. God speaks to Abraham. We don't know exactly if it was a vision, if it was a, if it was a voice, if it was a, a sign. We just, it's just recorded. It's been written in the ancient scriptures. God speaks to Abraham. And he says in chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make you Make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, his family name, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Ouch. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He was 70 years old, childless, when God promised, through your family. What family exactly? Never mind, trust me. Through your family, I'm going to bless all of the families in the earth. It's God's method of choice to bring restoration to the world. You know, there's no one in the world that you will die for, kill for, or think about killing all in the same day like family. It brings the, the best, the worst, and the crazy out of all of us in the most extreme ways. Family is a gift, and at times, the, I don't want to say curse, that's, that's harsh, but family is just hard. It is just hard. And that's my second point, really, is that it's God's method of choice, and it's arguably the hardest thing you'll ever do if you actually aspire to do it well, right. If, if you aspire to simply go beyond merely keeping up appearances, um, and if you have part of a family like that, where it's just like it's so utterly and painfully dysfunctional that all you can really think to do as a family is just keep up appearances. Just, let's just at least pretend. Keep the skeletons buried deep, deep in the closet. We do not speak of them. We do not pray about them. We just want to keep it together. If you aspire to do anything more than that, 
like to perhaps be a blessing to the world, it will, in my humble experience, be the hardest thing you ever do. I would love to be proven wrong. Oh, that would be wonderful. But it's just just one of those things. Now, word of encouragement. I just read you out of Genesis 12. God continues to reiterate this promise that he makes to Abraham pertaining to his family and all of the families um, on the earth. In fact, for several chapters throughout Genesis, starting in verse or chapter 12, all the way up through chapter 21, God keeps visiting Abraham. You know, he doesn't end up having child until he's 100 years old. He gives birth to uh, the, the son of promise, Isaac. I name my boy after him. 30 years he waits. And let me tell you something encouraging about the family of Abraham. I don't know if you will ever find, at least in the scriptures... I don't know if you'll ever find a more severely dysfunctional family than Abraham's family. I mean, there's like lying, there's adultery, there's affairs, there's swindling, there's scandals. There's just like drama, 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 which is super encouraging because one would be tempted to think that the way God is going to use this amazing family to bless the world is naturally through their uh, perfection, through their gifts, through their, you know, all that's good about them. Um, But to the contrary, God chooses, and it makes you think, well, perhaps this is why he chose Abraham, because he knew, he knew that this was a family who was going to be riddled with drama. I don't know if that encourages you, but... Um, it does encourage me. How's your family? I want to talk now about the cross, but I want us to shift gears a little bit. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at the cross primarily through the lens of atonement. So when Jesus sacrificed his own self, his body. When he suffered, spilled his blood, gave his body, he did so as a quote-unquote atoning sacrifice for our sins. The scriptures refer to that as a propitiation. And instead of us having to suffer and die for our own sin, our own brokenness, Jesus, who lived a sinless life, dies in our place, and thus we can experience new life by vicariously joining in his death as a substitute for ours. And that, I would insist, is, is the, the most proper way to understand what exactly was happening when Jesus died on the cross. But there's several angles to the event, and what I want us to look at this morning is what's historically been referred to as Christus exemplar, Latin phrase for the example of Christ. And not only was Jesus dying as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, but he was demonstrating something about what it looks like to die for others. It's the example of Christ that's been said. In fact, I think it was John Piper, who's probably the most popular Reformed pastor and a theologian, who, to put it this way, but he said that salvation begets imitation. When you've experienced 
redemption in Jesus Christ, when you've been born again, as Jesus puts it, there's, a, there's something that begins to take place. We begin to become more and more like Jesus. Our salvation begets imitation, i.e. Christus exemplar. I want us to look at four aspects of the example that Jesus has given us through his death on the cross in terms of our family. Number one, brokenness and new life. Brokenness and new life. Jesus said, this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was speaking explicitly about his own death and resurrection. But it's an example for us as well. Brokenness and new life. You know, it's, uh, it was recorded by the, uh, according to the Gospel of Mark. You know, there was a stage in the life of Jesus where his mom and his brothers tried to stage an intervention for him. They were convinced that Jesus had lost his mind. And so they go to him. They try to work their way through the crowd to take him home, essentially. They, had, they were convinced, apparently, that Jesus had absolutely gone crazy. That's exactly what the scriptures say. How about that? Have you, have you ever been the recipient of a family-coordinated uh, intervention? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Could you imagine? It does happen, usually to do with alcoholism or, or drugs, and it's not funny at all, but... I mean, could you imagine your, your mom and your brothers are hunting you down because they're convinced, oh my gosh, little Jay has lost his mind. Like, we need, to get, we, need to, we need to get him institutionalized. How about that for a little family drama? The gospel, according to John, says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, just about to breathe his last breath, he looks down, he sees his mom, he sees his aunt, another woman who had been a part of his discipleship group named Mary, and he sees one of the 12, his 12 disciples, John, who refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, which I love. He looked at his mom, he looked at John, and he said, behold, your mother and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. It went from, let's stage an intervention for Jesus who has lost his mind to the cross where a new family is formed. His mom goes to live with this follower of his, his disciple John from that point on. Something happened. Something happened. In that moment of utter brokenness, extreme vulnerability, death, something new is formed. 
I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about your mom, but as far as family goes, like, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't mess with mama, okay? We don't make mama jokes. We don't talk about your mama unless you want to fight, okay? That's, that's serious business. Jesus looks to his disciple, John. He says, John, I need you to take care of my mom. I'm about to die. I need her to move in with you. And she did from that moment on. Here's the point that I want to draw out. There's a principle here. Relationship is solidified when we become vulnerable. Relationship is only ever built or developed or grown or repaired when trust is present. But trust is only established when one chooses to be vulnerable with another. Guys, keeping up appearances is probably the the best way to do the most damage to your family and its relationships. It's only when we can become broken before each other, when we can expose our vulnerabilities, that trust happens and something new is formed. That's brokenness. Three more points, responsibility, and reconciliation. Let me make a quick point about this one. Brokenness in new life, number two, is responsibility and reconciliation. God is always the initiator. God looked at all of his little dysfunctional children, all of us running around, killing each other, destroying ourselves, wrecking the planet, being our little selfish selves. God, like a parent, didn't stand aloof and say, well, look, you're the one that, you know, screwed this whole thing up, so you're going to have to make the first move. You're the one who lied. You're the one who was selfish. You're the one who sinned, so what are you going to do about it? God doesn't do that. He does the exact opposite. (laughs) He takes responsibility for us, for his children. He initiates reconciliation. In our families, as obviously we were all painfully familiar with, I'm assuming, like what it's like to have something go down in your family. Misunderstanding. Um, A brother, a sister, a sibling, a parent. uh, Someone says something. Someone lies. Someone gets an attitude, and there's a rift. You don't want to talk to each other anymore. You want to just uh, be passive-aggressive. Who's going to make the first move? Who's going to be the one to start the conversation? Naturally, we wait for the person who, who sinned first. We wait for the person who lied, right? And, of course, they're waiting for you. Because you probably did something that warranted their behavior. And so we wait, and we wait, and we wait. Eventually, we forget. Um, Only it festers. It doesn't go away. In our families, if we want to imitate Jesus, it is our responsibility 
to always initiate reconciliation. You know that. It's called being like our Father, being like Christ. It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter who's at fault. We initiate reconciliation just like God did with us. It is super, super hard. Super hard. Slash impossible outside of the grace of God. (laughs) Number three, sacrifice and love. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in Jesus, wouldn't perish, wouldn't have to ultimately, eternally die, would receive eternal life, new life in him. He loved, therefore he gave. I would say if there was one takeaway point, one thing you could write down, one note you could pin up on your wall that will turn the pain, the brokenness in the family around, or rather begin to turn things around, is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Most of our lives, I believe, like most of the human experience is based on the bartering, the trading, the back and forth, the give to get, the mutual compensation of what we call love in our lives. I go to work, I give, but I expect, underline that word a couple times, compensation. Look, I love my coworkers. I love my job. I love the people around me. As long as the love is mutual, as long as the exchange rate is favorable, and that's, that's the human experience. Hmm. In the family of God, there's something else going on. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. With what expectation? With what in return? With exactly what string attached? None. God gave because the nature of God is sacrificial love. He gives because he gives. He loves because he is love. It is core, it is essence, it is who he is. In our families, and even in this church family, guys, there will be those of us, let me just be very real now, who act a little bit like my three-year-old. And they're like emotional black holes. <laughs> they, they, you know, naturally, it is all about them, and it will continue to be all about them for probably a few years to go. As a father, one of my primary goals as a father is to teach my kids how to begin to love without expecting anything in return. That's called sacrificial love. Doesn't mean there's, it's love without hope. It doesn't mean that it's love without an anticipation of something good 
taking place as we sow, as we give, as we invest in others. But it's love detached from an expectation of compensation. We don't love expecting to get something in return. I think this is the great misnomer of what's often referred to in Christianity as the great exchange. It's a little confusing because it is an exchange. We are exchanging ourselves for the life of Jesus. You've heard perhaps this terminology in describing what took place in the cross. Jesus, he, he exchanges his sinless life for our wrecked, broken life, and he dies in our place, and in exchange we get his righteousness, his life, his redemption. And I guess it is an exchange in that sense, but the exchange rate is terrible. Because, because we get everything. We get everything. We get it all. And what does Jesus get in return? He gets to die on a cross. The scriptures do say that it was for the joy set before him. So in the end, he does get the family that he desires, that it's at the, the, the deepest recesses of his heart. But he didn't give his son with like a with seven billion strings attached. He gave because he loved. This is how a family is built up. This is how this is how pain begins to heal when we can start to love each other with zero expectation. I preached a sermon uh, a few months ago. High risk, low expectation. You love, you sign up for vulnerability. You give, you sign up to perhaps be taken advantage of. It's exactly what God signed up for. There was no guarantee. There was no stipulation when it came to his love. He simply gave. He gave because he loves. How about that? Sacrificial love. Finally, prayer and hope. Luke chapter 23. This is the very end of the gospel according to Luke. Jesus is about to breathe his last. It's a slightly different angle compared to John's. It says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He was quoting Psalm 27. His last words on the cross was a prayer. A prayer of hope crying out to his father. It was certainly a vivid illustration of the humanity of Jesus. In that moment of experiencing that separation that he died to undo himself, he, he felt that tear taking place on the inside of him, that separation however that must have felt, between son and father, eternal God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Guys, let me, let me close with this. When it comes to family, 
you might be vulnerable. You might have the courage to let your brokenness show. Get the skeletons out of the closet. Begin to have the very, very painful conversations about what actually is going on in your marriage, which, what actually is going on in your child's life. You may be willing to take responsibility for initiating reconciliation. Maybe you have been on the abusive end of the relationship, and I hope you haven't. I make nothing light about that. Perhaps you have done everything to give sacrificially. Perhaps you've given your time, your money. You've poured out every speck of emotion you can muster. And maybe it's all gotten worse. Maybe you're ready to just leave your family. I have a, I have a cousin who's... Um, I don't, know if, I don't know if he'll ever hear this. I hope he does. But uh, he's been gone. He left the family. He lives in Portland, apparently. I can't find him. I can't get a hold of him. He's my first cousin. He's my aunt's son. His, his sister, my cousin, uh, died. She was about 20. Wrecked my family. Wrecked my family. Beautiful, talented, loved God. Katie, she died. Uh, her immediate family was just decimated. Just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't bear up under the, the pain. Um, and my cousin, her brother, just decided to leave the family. I don't blame him one second. The, the kind of pain he's processing, he just, he just had to leave. It turns out he's in Portland someplace. I can't wait to find him someday. Guys, the point is this. You might get to that place where you feel like, no, 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 nothing's getting better whatsoever. Your little example of Christ's speech is rubbish. It's not helping. My final point. Pray. Pray and commit your family into the hands of of our perfect father. You may be a father, you may be a son, you may be a cousin, you have a family, but we all have a heavenly father, a God who calls himself father. Pray, pray. And like Jesus, who in that moment when he breathed his last, I have to imagine that at least in his humanity, he thought to himself, this is it. This is it. It's, this is my, my father has abandoned me. I'm dying. If you read Psalm 27, it, it's a song of redemption. It's a song of rescue. And you have to imagine Jesus, he's thinking, he, he's, he's reciting the, the, the words of this psalm in his mind. But Father, where are you? You were supposed to rescue me. I don't get it. I'm dying. I'm about to breathe my last. This family that I thought you were building, this redemption that was supposed to be 
taking place through the lineage of Abraham. Jesus, you ever wonder why there's so many genealogical records throughout the Bibles? Because Jesus was the offspring, the great, 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 great something, or rather grandson of Father Abraham. And now he's dying. I don't mean to depress all of us. You might be thinking, my family is actually fine. <laughs> like, well, good, that's awesome, that's wonderful. I hope you can be a blessing to perhaps some broken families around you. Seriously, we need that encouragement. My parents have reminded me more than once that the stage my kids are at, this is the fun stage, which scares me to death. <laughs> it's pretty fun, but hard and they say and they have this like slightly sinister grin on their face when they say it son just wait till they hit the teens just just wait and I think about the teenager I was and I'm like that's not cool (laughs) you can't throw that in my face like Jesus has redeemed me because that's family We need to end here, but let, let, me, let me close it with this. We've been talking about our, well, presumably, our immediate families, our biological families, our adopted families, um, but this all applies to the family that God is building here. Of course, church family, spiritual family, never, ever can replace our, uh, our natural family, as it were. But all of these principles apply to the family that God is building in this church. You know what we're doing here? You know what this is? Family. God is building an example of family in his church. Wherever his church exists, all throughout the city, big, small, family. You know what my vision is for our family? is that we would, we would be the kind of family that would be a safe haven for broken families out there. Children derailed, marriage on the rocks. Great. We've got a, we've got a family here that you can come and, and, and take refuge in. We can help feed you. I have two couches in my living room. And I'm being dead serious. This is, this is my hope. When we invite someone to come to church, ever invite someone to come to church? I'm so uncomfortable saying that. You want to come to church? Well, what am I coming to exactly? Meeting? Intervention? Like, what is it? Are we going to sing songs? It's going to be like karaoke? Is the preacher any good? Is he funny? Sometimes. <laughs> there it was. <clears throat> No, no, no. Here's what we're doing. When we invite someone to come to church, we're saying, here, let me give you a copy of the key to my, this is to my front door right here. Let me make a copy of this and give it to you. You got refrigerator rights. You need food, you let yourself in. 
you get in the fridge. There's not much there. If you can, if you can get around Judah, knock yourself out. You need a place to sleep, you got a key. I'm being dead serious. How cool would that be? If the kind of family that we were building here, obviously there's some logistics to think through. You know, there's some safety things to, to process. But, but what if that was our attitude? What we're building here means if I'm inviting you to be a part of this, if I'm gonna share the gospel with you and ask you to put your trust in Jesus, in essence, what I'm doing is saying, I've been adopted into an incredible family. Would you like to be a part of it? Here's the key. We've all built something around Jesus. We've all come to him broken. We've all been hurt. We've all been let down. We all come from broken families at one level or another. Would you like to join my father's family, Jesus has made a way. That's what we're doing here, guys. Now, don't ask me to, I mean, details, details, details. Gosh, what a mess that would be. But if we read Acts, which we did a couple months ago, that's essentially what we see. All things in common people sharing their lives, eating together, being family together, learning together, growing together, dying together. Are you guys with me? Some of you are like, maybe, maybe. We'll feel it out. Should close here. Can we stand together? For through him, through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, refugees, rejects, but you are all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Father, I pray that by your spirit working in us, working in our families, working in your church, that we would be able to apply the kind of love that you yourself demonstrated towards us in giving your son Jesus to die on the cross. I pray that you would give us the courage to be broken in front of each other, to have conversations that would leave us in a place of vulnerability so that trust might be established. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace 
Give us the courage to take responsibility for our families and for our relationships with each other so that when we offend one another, when we misspeak, when we break trust, we wouldn't wait, we wouldn't stand aloof, but we would take responsibility to initiate reconciliation, to have the difficult conversations instead of simply leaving or stuffing it. Father, I pray that you would help us to love each other in a way that is truly sacrificial, that we wouldn't constantly hold back and waiting to see what we might get in return, but that we would give because you have given to us, because, because you have loved us. I pray that you would help us, Father. Open our hearts wide and pour your love into us, that we would have something to bring to the family, that we would be like moms and dads and older brothers and older sisters, happy to raise the little ones, happy to teach our, our brothers and sisters who are, who are still struggling. And Father, we commit all of these things into your hands. Father, I pray for every struggling marriage, every family that's been fractured and frayed and where perhaps there's even sons and daughters who have, who have gone far away. Lord Jesus, you said that you would bring many sons and daughters home. And so we commit all of the ones that we love into your hands with an earnest expectation and hope that you won't let us down, that you're not incapable, you're not a flake, but you're good, you're powerful, and you are a faithful Father. In Jesus' name, amen.